Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. And I'd like to read to you before Natalie comes to preach this morning from Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 26, and it, uh, Luke writes as follows. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demonized man from the town. And for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. And many times it had seized him. Though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he'd broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus said to him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed. In his right mind, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And he got into the boat and he left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town what Jesus had done for them. Let's give Natalie a really warm welcome, shall we, as she comes to preach to us. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Um, It's wonderful to be with you guys this morning. For those who I haven't met before, my name is Natalie and I lead the Central Surfs here with David and Philippa. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying the summer. It's been a bit of a weird summer, hasn't it? Because June was like the promise of summer. The temperatures are going up. And then July was insert ambiguous season here. Um, But I I feel confident about August, um, particularly because of the retreat. Uh, The weather looks nice. Um, I really hope that we can all become lobsters in Jesus' name when we go there. (laughs) Um, So, as uh, David said, we're continuing our study of Luke's gospel, and we've reached the point in the story where Jesus has sailed across the Lake of Galilee towards Gerasenes, a predominantly Gentile region. And in this small village, we're told that Jesus essentially performs an exorcism on a man that's been possessed by demons. 
Now, right from the start, I can appreciate that this story might sound extremely strange and disturbing, especially if you're hearing this for the first time at 10 to 12 on a Sunday morning. However, given that we know at this point that Luke has used eyewitness accounts um, to record his gospel, I have managed, after much research, to track down one of these eyewitness reports. I know what you're thinking, it was over 2,000 years ago, how did you manage to do that? But with all things, um, God can do it, amen? So hopefully this report will give us a deeper insight into the action that took place. Girl, I almost died yesterday. Yes, let me tell you. So you know that one crazy dude that's always by the grass? Him. Well, this other dude came up and was like, get out the man. And the man was like, I don't want to go. Send me and the pigs. And I was like, the pigs? So I left. And I'm so glad I did because when I turned around, the whole herd jumped off the cliff. Girl, they had jumped off the whole cliff. As you can imagine, this poor pig will likely need years of therapy to process the traumatic events that she witnessed. <laughs> All jokes aside, though, um, it's one of those stories in Luke that can have us easily stumped. I mean, if you look at Jesus' teachings, sure, you may not agree with them at first glance, but on an intellectual level, you can reason with them in some way. Um, then you have Jesus' miracles. Well, everyone loves a miracle, right? Who doesn't want to see someone receive their sight or the lame be able to walk again? And Jesus caring for the poor while snubbing the rich and self-righteous in society, well, that probably would make a lot of sense too. But demons, impure spirits, exorcisms, that all sounds like quite a lot. However, no matter how unrelatable this story might seem, Luke has obviously included it in his gospel account for a reason. And right at the start of the gospel of Luke, he tells his friend Theophilus his purpose in writing. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants the reader to have certainty about who Jesus is. And I want to put forward that this story is included to give us certainty about Jesus's authority over the spiritual realm and evil forces. But before we get into this passage further, I think it's important to quickly outline what the Bible teaches us about spiritual forces. And a disclaimer from the start, I've gleaned much knowledge and wisdom for some great Bible teachers and theologians whose works I will regularly quote. So please know that any great points most definitely comes from them. So, first of all, the Bible teaches us that there is both a material and spiritual realm. In his book, Unseen Realities, R.C. Sproul writes... There is an uncompromised supernaturalism at the heart of the Christian worldview. And we must not let the world's skepticism with regard to these things affect our belief systems. We must trust and affirm that there is much more to reality than meets the eye. 
So we have the material, what we can see, but we also have the spiritual or the supernatural, the things unseen. We worship God even though we cannot see him with the naked eye. Indeed, Jesus confirmed in John 4.24 that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And when he taught his disciples to pray, they asked for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we also see examples in scripture where man has been given a glimpse of this spiritual realm. For example, there's Jacob's vision in the wilderness of a stairway to heaven. Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple worshipped by angels. And not to mention the entire book of Revelation. The Bible leaves us with no doubt that there is a spiritual world that exists alongside a physical one. Secondly, we have a defined spiritual adversary. There is a spiritual enemy of God who is often referred to in scripture as Satan or the devil. And earlier on in Luke's gospel, we read about Jesus being tempted by that same devil who's also referred to in that passage as the accuser in the wilderness. And as children of God, the devil is our enemy also. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, note what the Apostle Paul tells us here. He says that our struggle is not only against rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, but also against spiritual forces of evil. And I want to draw your attention to this, because one objection towards this idea of the devil and evil forces is that it over-spiritualizes the concept of evil, Because surely evil isn't about some demonic figure, but it's about broken people in this world making broken choices. But in his book, Encounters of Jesus, Tim Keller disputes this argument thoroughly. And I've included a long quote here simply because I think he explains it so well. He says this, If it's true that there are demonic forces out there, then the evil in the world cannot be reduced simply to human choices. Don't get me wrong. Human beings all by themselves are capable of great sin. And of course, those sinful human choices are a significant component of the matrix of evil in the world. But when I moved to a small town in the South in the 1970s, I could see the tail end of the society and the institutions that kept African-Americans excluded from any economic or political power. If you talk to those individuals in those institutions, while many of them were definitely bigots, and even more of them were merely clueless, you realize that most of the individuals were not especially evil in themselves. Yet the systems they comprised were certainly evil. Remember that Hannah Arendt saw this when she covered the trial of the Nazi death camp leader Adolf Eichmann for the New Yorker. 
and spoke thereof of the banality of evil. The system was far more evil and destructive than the thousands of fairly ordinary individuals who made it up. There's some kind of force out there that magnifies, complicates and perpetuates the bad things that are happening in the social and psychological systems of the world. Christianity says there's more evil than you can account for in the world just from the cumulative effect of wrong individual choices. And you can attribute some of that evil to actual demonic forces. Thirdly, the devil's mission is to deceive us and draw us away from God's truth. In John 8, 44, Jesus says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John Mark Comer expands on this further in his book, Live No Lies. The devil's goal is to first isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Specifically, he lies about who God is, who we are, and what the good life is, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. So the devil's main weaponry is lies and deceit. And we see this right from the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because the serpent deceives Eve into believing that God's motives are not to be trusted. And that mankind's status should actually be elevated. And that God is in fact withholding something good from them. And the devil continues to use these same lies throughout the Bible story and with us today. Now, I appreciate that was very much a whistle-stop tour of the theology of the spiritual world. But I think it now sets us up nicely to approach our passage. So let's just remind ourselves by reading it again. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirits to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, 
and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now there are two key things that we learn about Jesus in this passage. First of all, his power over spiritual forces. And secondly, his willingness to deliver us from evil. Firstly, Jesus shows us his power and authority over the demons that have possessed this man. This man who had repeatedly broken out of the chains that were used to restrain him is now falling at the feet of Jesus. And the demons within him are no match against Jesus and his authority over them. Notice how they know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus, son of the most high God. Jesus was barely revealing to anyone at this point that he was the Messiah and yet the demons are fully aware of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And secondly, they beg Jesus to be sent into a herd of pigs. Now, some scholars actually have the audacity to criticize Jesus for choosing to cast the demons into the pigs and thus destroying someone's livelihood, as if they can tell God what to do with his own creation. However, Warren Wiersbe suggests in his commentary of this passage that Jesus might have chosen to do this deliberately so that there was no doubt that he delivered the man from the evil spirits tormenting him. And that's why the passage ends with the man going into town and telling everyone that Jesus, not a sorcerer or a wooden idol or a pagan ritual, but Jesus was the one who delivered him from the forces of evil. And secondly, we're struck by Jesus's compassion and willingness to deliver this man. I mean, look at what this man has been through. He had no clothes on. He had no place to call home. He simply wandered around in the tombs away from civilization. He was bound with chains and he was watched over like an animal. And when that didn't work, he was driven by the demons into solitary places, completely isolated. He was simply left to his own devices, whilst the rest of the town went on with their lives. 
Jesus didn't have to bother himself with this man. He could have ignored him as he stepped ashore. And yet, Jesus chooses to save him. He chooses to use his power and authority to rescue him. It's one thing to believe in a powerful God, but it's another thing to believe in a powerful God that is willing to rescue us. About 12 to 13 years ago, wow, I know that made me sound really old. Obviously, I was 10 at the time. Um, I watched a Christian film called Furious Love. And the concept behind the film was a question. It was, how far does God's love really go? For example, will it go to the depths of occultism and the satanic church? Will it meet with the transgender sex workers in underground Bangkok? And in every scenario that is presented, the answer is a resounding yes. Because there is no depth that God's love and compassion cannot reach. There is no darkness that his light cannot overcome. No matter how far you believe your spiritual bondage and oppression has gone. God's love and power can go further. Therefore, what is our response to what we find in this passage? How should it shape our lives as disciples? Well, first of all, we must acknowledge that we face a spiritual battle. In his work, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We must strike a balance between these two states. We can often be so capable and so self-sufficient that when difficulties arise, our first instinct is, I want to try and fix it or I want to try and control it. And sure, maybe we might pray as a last resort perhaps, but if things don't change immediately, we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, it is what it is. But we mustn't be blind to the fact that there can be spiritual elements to our circumstances too, because we are in a spiritual battle. But on the other hand, philosophies like the ever-increasing New Age movement are examples of this excessive and unhealthy interest in spiritual evil. Because if it is not the power of God that we're looking to, then it can only be the power of evil disguised as good. And even Christians can fall fully to over-spiritualizing situations and giving Satan more credit than he deserves. Because how comes the spirit of lateness only affects you on your way to church, but never on your way to work? I mean, God is grace, but church starts at 11, guys. And when I have kids, I'll give you permission to play this back to me. <laughs> no, the right approach is to be aware of the fight against evil that we face. 
It's to be quick to pray and to ask for God's intervention, knowing that his power and grace alone is what we require. Secondly, we must stay alert to Satan's attempts to draw us away from God's truth. Quoting John Mark Homer again, he says, the danger for most of us is not that we feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil, but it's actually that we just ignore him entirely and go about our lives oblivious to his daily assault on our souls. We need to be more mindful of the things that we consume, what we put into our minds and our hearts, and the potential lies that Satan might be planting there. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, so this is the point where Natalie tells us about all the music artists we can't listen to because they secretly belong to the Illuminati, or all the films we can't watch because they contain subliminal messages about worshipping Satan. Um, but I'm not going to go there. I definitely grew up listening to such sermons, but I'm so wary about that kind of teaching for two reasons. One, because I think it creates this legalistic culture where people start to decide, okay, um, this artist is like might be low-key demonic, but this artist is really demonic, so I'm not going to listen to them anymore. And that's missing the point. Um, and two, because it hugely underestimates what's meant by Satan's deceit. Because I'm not saying that the devil doesn't work in overt ways like that. But if we're being honest, it's more of the covert ways that we often miss. It's the subtle lies that Satan tells us about what is valuable and good and trustworthy in this world that we so often passively consume through art and culture and social media and the opinions of others. And so we have to follow the instructions of 1 Peter 5.8. To be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is looking to devour us. And he uses all sorts of ways to do that. And if we mindlessly consume things and we don't stop to think about what is this telling me about the world? And is that against what I learn about God in his word? If we don't take the time to question, we could be making ourselves easy targets. But finally, and most importantly of all, we must not be afraid of Satan. For God is greater and has overcome him. I'm going to say that again for the people that didn't hear it the first time. We must not be afraid of Satan. For God is greater and has overcome him. Tim Keller writes, Christianity is not dualistic. The demonic forces are not the equal of God. The devil is a fallen angel leading fallen angels and God is infinitely more powerful. And in the very end, not only can God overcome them all, but he certainly will. This is the electrifying promise and hope that blows through all the pages of the Bible. Now, one of my friends who used to go um, to CCL, 
She often tells people of the time when we went out in East London with other people from the Mile End Service to share the gospel with people, to tell people about Jesus. And there was a man that we came across in the park. So I went up to him and I was like, I'd really love to tell you about Jesus. I believe that Jesus loves you, has a great plan for your life. Um, and his response to that was, well, I'm Satan. Um, and my response to that was, am I supposed to be scared? <laughs> and Barbara believes <laughs> that the Holy Spirit was really speaking to me through that <laughs> in that day. And she'll tell everyone, no, my goodness, like you should have seen Natalie, like God was moving. She just said, am I supposed to be scared? It was amazing. To be honest, I think I was probably just being my sassy self and didn't really think that much about how I responded. But the point remains the same, that we need to acknowledge Satan's existence, but we shouldn't be afraid of him because God can and will overcome him. And in fact, he has already overcome him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul talks about this same power in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the cross, over them by the cross. You see, the Colossians at this time, whilst they were converts to Christianity, they were still so bound by the fear that the pagan religions and superstitious beliefs around them had promoted. And they were questioning, is Jesus enough? Is his death on the cross enough for our sins to protect us against the forces of evil? Or do we need to continue to worship these deities from before? But Paul's response to this was to remind them of the power of the cross that not only resurrected their dead spirits to life in him, but that defeated all evil and demonic forces that had once kept them enslaved. And I'm reminded of the song by Tim Hughes that writes, the cross stands above it all, burning bright in this life. The cross towers over it all. One hope, one deliverer, saviour reigning high above it all. And we, we sang it in that song, Jesus over everything. You know, we sang over death, over sin, over hell, over the grave. Darkness bows, demons flee at the mention of his name. The cross really does stand above it all above everything in the material world and in the spiritual world. And all of us who put our faith in Jesus, who are filled with his spirit, can have demons trembling at our feet. If the band could come back up, please. Now, I'm aware that most of us have probably never witnessed or been possessed by demons but I can still relate in many ways to the perils of this man in our passage in the spiritual sense. 
Maybe there have been overwhelming situations or sinful habits or ways of thinking that have left you feeling spiritually bound in, or in chains. Maybe they've isolated you and have caused you to believe that there is no hope. Maybe there are things that you have just accepted as part of life that you've struggled with and only now you're starting to think, what if there was a spiritual element to that? What if actually the devil is trying to keep me enslaved? But I want to assert again that this is a lie from the devil, the enemy of God. And the truth is that God can and will set you free. He can and will deliver you from the hands of evil. He can deliver you from shame, from fear, from anxiety, from sickness and disease, from feelings of low self-worth or low self-esteem, of feelings from things that have happened to you previously that you have just written yourself off and you've not been able to forgive yourself, or things that you know that you do in secret that you just feel like, I, I can't battle this anymore. I try and I try and I can't find any relief. If only we just cried out to Jesus because he can deliver us. He has all power and authority. So we're going to respond in worship now, but I'd really like to call the prayer team to just come to my right. The prayer team, they pray um, every week before the service. And obviously they're here to pray with people. And I really want to invite people up for prayer this morning. I don't want anyone to lose their opportunity to cry out to God and say, God, I need your help. I've been battling with this for too long. I've been feeling isolated. I've been feeling afraid. I've been feeling bound. But I believe that you can and will deliver me. And I'm crying out to you. And as Jesus is spiritually stepping to the shore, he will meet you with his spirit this morning. So um, we've got the prayer team there. I'm going to join that side as well. And we're going to sing and worship. But please, if, you, if any of this resonates with you, if you've been coming this morning being like, I just want to be set free, I invite you to come and receive prayer. There's no judgment. We're all here longing to know Jesus, longing to be met by him. But I'm just going to pray now to open up worship for us all. If we could please stand as we do that. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come this morning. We invite your presence here with us. You are the only one who truly knows us, God. You know the secret things of our hearts, everything that we've been struggling with or have felt trapped by. And yet you still pursue us and long to deliver us. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and minister to us 
We pray for your power to deliver us from evil. To deliver us from spiritual bondage. Even if we've never recognized it before. Will you just raise that up in our hearts now? Will you just bring it to the surface as we cry out to you? And will you set us free this morning? We thank you, Lord God, that you can and will overcome the enemy on our behalf. And so as we worship, Lord, will you speak to us? Will you lead us in prayer? And may we experience your healing. In Jesus' name, amen.